This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Israel has continued its bombardment of Gaza with the assault now in its 42nd day. In the north, Jabalia refugee camp was struck overnight, causing widespread destruction and reportedly killing 18 people. The force of the blast was so powerful, a multi-storey building was uprooted from its foundations, with survivors having to use their hands to dig out people buried in the rubble. In the south, their Al-Shabura refugee camp near the Rafa crossing was also hit. Strikes there, as well as at a farm near the crossing, left a further 10 Palestinians dead. But the violence isn't restricted just to Gaza. Israel has also targeted the town of Jenin in the West Bank. The attack there began with three drone strikes on the Jenin refugee camp, with the Palestinian Ambulance Service reporting three Palestinians were killed. Israel, however, says the number of dead is five. According to Al Jazeera, around eight armoured vehicles then entered the town, raiding Palestinian homes and detaining several people. Bulldozers were also reportedly used, damaging buildings, vehicles and cars. The IDF also targeted hospitals. This footage shows medical staff being ordered to leave the IBN Sina hospital in Janine. Um, you can see them leaving the building with their hands up, dressed in medical uniforms, slowly walking towards Israeli armoured vehicles. Overnight, 47 Palestinians were arrested in the West Bank and 203 Palestinians have been killed there since October 7th. In Gaza, nearly 11,700 Palestinians have now been killed by Israeli attacks. Despite those horrific figures, Israel's attacks on Palestine may be set to intensify. The south of Gaza is supposed to be safer than the north. Despite that, Airstrikes are still happening there, and yesterday, the IDF dropped leaflets on southern towns, ordering its residents to evacuate their homes. That led to fears of an impending escalation, something that Benjamin Netanyahu's advisor Mark Regev now seems to have confirmed on Sky News. He said, quote, You saw what happened to the city of Gaza. Khan Yunis is a centre for Hamas activity as well. We're asking civilians, please vacate the area for your own safety. We don't want to see you caught up in the crossfire. So Gaza City completely destroyed. People told to move to the south of the Gaza Strip because it would be safer. Now they've destroyed Gaza City. They're saying, oh, by the way, Hamas are also under Khan Yunis. So are they going to destroy that city now uh, as well? I mean, that was their initial plan. It does seem like they are following through on that. And the rest of the world has been somewhat gullible in believing them, or the rest of the Western world, let's say. Now, hostilities there are set to spread south. Israel has also announced that it will allow two tankers of fuel into Gaza per day, an amount it describes as, quote, very minimal. That's just 6% of the amount of fuel that flowed into the territory before the war began. The decision reportedly comes after a request made by the US, but for some, um, it's still too much. Israel's far-right finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, said this about the decision. Allowing fuel into Gaza is a grave mistake and against the cabinet's decision. It reflects weakness. It is giving oxygen to the enemy. It spits in the face of the IDF soldiers, the hostages and their families and the bereaved families. It is also contrary to the decision of the political security cabinet and therefore is illegal. This is not how you win a war. This is not how you destroy Hamas. And this is how we will not return the hostages. It's not just bombardment threatening Palestinians in Gaza. The UN has now warned that Gaza faces the immediate possibility of starvation, with food and water supplies described as practically non-existent. Meanwhile, disease has begun to spread in the overcrowded south of the territory. Um, of course, these are the horrors being endured by 2.3 million 
civilians in Gaza City, in Gaza, sorry, the whole of the Gaza Strip. Um, the starts of the Western powers, though, has not shifted much. Now, speaking in a press conference with Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shatia today, um, the EU's foreign affairs representative, Joseph Burrell, said this. A horror doesn't justify another horror. And the best friends of Israel are the ones who ask them not to be driven by rage. The European Union, and now also the United Nations, through the last United Nations Security Council resolutions adopted yesterday, has demanded an immediate humanitarian pauses and more access to the humanitarian assistance including water, fuel, that can reach the civilian in Gaza. We at the European Union, since the start of the Israeli military campaign against Hamas, we have multiplied by four our humanitarian assistance to the people in Gaza, to almost 100 million, have increased our funding for UNRWA by another 10 million, bringing the funding over 90 million this year. But we know it's not enough. In the US, Joe Biden has shut down any prospect of a ceasefire, but he did have slightly tougher words for Israel when it comes to the outcome of its war on Gaza. I made it clear to the Israelis that, um, and to Bibi and to his war cabinet, that I think the only ultimate answer here is a two state solution that's real. We've got to get to the point where. There is an ability to be able to even talk without worrying about whether or not we're just dealing with, uh, they're dealing with Hamas that's going to engage in the same activities they did over the past, uh, on, on the 7th. So it, it's, uh, but I can't tell, I'm not a fortune teller, I can't tell you how long it's going to last. But I can tell you, I don't think it ultimately ends until there's a two-state solution. I made it clear to the Israelis, I think it's a big mistake to, for them to think they're going to occupy Gaza and maintain Gaza. I don't think that works. Well, they, they, they seem to have not made their mind up. Do they want to occupy Gaza or do they want to just completely flatten Gaza? I mean, it seems that their, their position is somewhere in between those two poles at the moment. Any kind of autonomy for Gaza, obviously out of the question for the Israelis. Now, to discuss the war on Gaza and how international actors in particular are responding to the latest developments, I'm joined by Trita Parsi. I'm his executive vice president at the Quincy Institute and author of treacherous alliance on Israeli-Iranian relations. Um, thank you for joining us this evening. To, to start off, I mean, is, is there any sense in which Biden is starting to toughen up on Israel? No, I think incidental statements here and there do not in any way, shape or form amount to pressure. It's frankly an insult to pressure. The real pressure would come when there is an or else when there is clear demands coupled with threats of withdrawing aid or doing other things that will get Netanyahu's attention. Right now, we have clearly very bright green lights for the Netanyahu government, coupled with the House and Congress voting for an additional $14 billion to uh, Israel. Under those circumstances, there's no way one can say that there's been any meaningful pressure. And what the United States have been able to achieve, such as a couple of more um, trucks getting an aid into Gaza, at the end of the day, tend to be rather insignificant. It would have been much better if the Biden administration had used its political capital and time 
to pressure Israel for real changes rather than these rather insignificant measures. And I mean, it seems at the moment that it's not just that Joe Biden isn't using pressure to affect what Israel is doing. That he also seems very willing to do Israel's PR for them. So sort of earlier in the conflict, we heard him sort of say he he had confirmed that he'd seen these beheaded babies. And then afterwards, his his team had to sort of say, oh, no, he, he just meant that he's read the same reports in Israeli media that the rest of you have read. And now this week, it seems somewhat significant that he told journalists that he was sure, you know, that he had the intelligence that there was a Hamas HQ under Al-Shifa hospital and that therefore um, basically justified Israel's Israel's attack on the, on the hospital. Now, you know, Israel have had access to that hospital since Wednesday. They haven't come up with any evidence that there is a Hamas HQ under the building. Is this something that potentially is going to embarrass the American president? It is already embarrassing uh, the president, but it's more, more importantly, perhaps really gutting the U.S.'s global standing and credibility. And it's not just in the Middle East, it's globally. Uh, when you take a look at how other countries are reacting to this, how their publics are reacting to this, uh, the number of countries in Latin America that have cut ties with Israel, the two million uh, people who were protesting in Indonesia, people around the world, particularly in the global south, are observing what the United States is doing very closely. They saw how the United States talked about rules-based order and demanded that the rest of the world sign on to their to the U.S. position on Ukraine, uh, including sanctions and military aid to Ukraine. Uh, without any real diplomatic strategy, coupled with that military component, and said that, you know, this, is, this invasion is about the future of the world order. And as a result, everyone has to chip in. Soon as the tables are turned and Israel is engaging in a war that has killed far more civilians in just five weeks than the Russians killed in Ukraine, then the United States is not just uh, avoiding anything to actually help the Palestinians, but is actively blocking a ceasefire, something that could help end the killing. And as a result of that, uh, I, I think the damage this is doing to the United States uh, will be seen over the course of the next decade or two, because we're moving in a direction in which at some point in the relatively near future, there's going to have to be some sort of a renegotiation of how the world is structured, because the underlying power dynamics of the current order have long expired. The current order is still based on the distribution of power in the world in 1945, by and large. Just in the last 10 years, dramatic shifts have taken place. The United States is going to enter those <clears throat> talks without the credibility that it absolutely needs. Uh, and it's lost that credibility to a very large extent over five weeks because of a refusal to stand up for the same principles that it asserted in Ukraine and stopping other countries from asserting those same principles. And I suppose, you know, on one level, of course, Israel's actions are being received very badly among global populations. On, on the other, the pushback against them has been relatively weak, not just from the West, but also from the rest of the world. So, I mean, as far as I understand it, one of the leading theories as to what Hamas were thinking, what their strategy was, is that if they sort of encouraged, if their attack sort of brought about a, a really full frontal Israeli attack, that could inspire um, intervention by Hezbollah in Lebanon. It could inspire intervention potentially by Iran, if not their proxies, obviously, including Hezbollah. Um, maybe there would be some sort of uprising in, in the West Bank. It, it does seem that actually the material response to Israelis' assault on Gaza has been fairly quiet. You know, uh, Do you think that's a fair analysis? And is that a surprise to you? 
I think it's a fair analysis in the sense that you're not seeing Hezbollah intervene in the manner that perhaps Hamas leadership currently would want, and certainly not Iran either. But I think it's also to a large extent because I don't think Hamas expected to be able to go that deep into Israel. I think their plan was to uh, kidnap uh, a dozen or a few dozen Israeli soldiers and use them for an exchange for the several thousand Palestinians that are being held uh, in Israeli jails. I don't think they knew or that Israel's guard and its intelligence would be so off on that day that they managed to get so deep into Israel. And as a result, we're not prepared for the type of response Israel very likely would give to that scale of an attack that Hamas ended up um, uh, uh, pursuing. Uh, so I think that's an element that is very important. The second part of this is I don't think there's any evidence that Hamas coordinated this attack in any way, shape, or form with Hezbollah or with Iran or with any of the Iraqi militias. They too were taken by surprise by this attack. The US intelligence, for instance, has said that they believe that the Iranians were taken by surprise. And as a result, there was no readiness on their end to suddenly gear up for a war. And it would be a very uh, devastating war. So there's an interest on their end to avoid a war. There's also a countervailing interest on Iran and Hezbollah's side to not allow Hamas to be completely defeated. We're still um, in the gray zone between those two interests, I would say, which is not entirely clear what Hezbollah and Iran will do. I do suspect that if this continues for a couple more weeks, that calculations in Tehran and in Lebanon will change. So far, they have not. And I think there's probably a degree of uh, disappointment in Hamas about that, but also a degree of frustration in Tehran and in, uh, in Lebanon because they were not ready for this in any way, shape or form. I mean, what do you think the the red line would be? I mean, initially there was discussion that maybe Hezbollah would get involved if if Israel did a ground invasion. Now, obviously, they've done a ground invasion. Um, sort of people were suggesting that if you know if if Israel were to just carpet bomb Gaza, then you might see the intervention of, of some countries. You might see Saudi Arabia, for example, sort of uh, signal that they don't want to continue with normalization with Israel. It does seem at the moment like Israel is is, is being able to behave really brutally and visibly in Gaza and. You know, I, you know, I'm sure it's not helpful for its relations in the Middle East, but you can imagine that there might be the Israeli government and the cabinet sort of thinking, we're getting away with this, essentially. So I think there was speculation, and I myself was of the belief that a ground invasion very likely could bring Hezbollah into the war. But if we listen to what Nasrallah has said, as well as what the Iranian leadership said, they have put forward a very different red line. The Iranians have said very clearly that they will go to war if they are attacked. Nasrallah said the same thing about two weeks ago in uh, a speech that he gave. So the red line that they put forward is actually not Gaza, it's if Israel were to expand the war itself. However, having said that, I'm not entirely sure that they will be able to stick to that red line in the sense that if the uh, killing in Gaza continues and if there is a situation in which Hamas is um, to a very large extent decimated and there is a perception in Hezbollah that Israel is actually likely to continue the war itself by attacking Lebanon as well, because there is now speculation, including inside the Biden administration, that they're fearful that Israel may have such plans. If that is what Hezbollah perceives, then you can see a scenario in which they would act preemptively. 
and attack Israel before Israel attacked it. But the, when it comes to the actual red lines that they put forward, it's actually been whether Israel would be invading Lebanon or whether it would be attacking Iran rather than what it is doing in Gaza. And I want to talk about a ceasefire. Um, MPs in, in this country were debating on, on Wednesday whether or not to call for a ceasefire. Now, you know, whether or not Britain called for a ceasefire is, might not be critical, but I think it would have had some impact. I was very much in favour of them voting for a ceasefire. I want to put to you some of the arguments against it, though. So what we heard in Parliament and what we've heard from sort of many media commentators as well is that it's, it's silly to demand a ceasefire because Hamas have no interest in one. They're, they're not interested in a ceasefire. And even if they were to agree a ceasefire with Israel, they would just immediately break it because, you know, they're, they're this organization driven by bloodlust, not rationality. Um, how would you respond to that? I find this a, a very disingenuous argument uh, because at the end of it, first of all, the ceasefire would be, bind, you know, would be to hold both parties to it. There has been numerous ceasefires between Israel and, and Hamas. Some of them have been held. Some of them have not been held. There is always an inherent risk with a ceasefire that someone may break it. That is not an argument not to put a stop to um, the type of ethnic cleansing and mass slaughter that is taking place uh, in Gaza right now with what is clearly indiscriminate bombing by the Israelis. So, yes, there is a risk that a ceasefire potentially would not be held. That is a risk that is inherent in all different type of ceasefires. But we're talking about a conflict right now in which the civilian deaths are far greater than any of the wars that we have seen in the last 25 plus years. In about 20 months of fighting, we had about 670 or so civilians killed, uh, sorry, children killed in Ukraine by Russia, which is of course completely unacceptable. But we've had 4,500 in just one month in Gaza. The average death of uh, children in Gaza is about 150, um, um, uh, uh, per day, talk about 4,000 in a year, whereas the average death numbers of children in Iraq, in Syria, in um, uh, Yemen did not even reach double-digit numbers. So the degree to which civilians are dying in this war is far greater than any other war. And to not agree to ceasefire because there's a potential risk that Hamas would not hold it is just simply a disingenuous argument, as if this is a new problem that has never come up in the past. There's always that problem with ceasefire. That's not a reason not to pursue one. And the other main argument sort of put against having a ceasefire is to say that Israel have this plan, they want to completely destroy Hamas. If you have a ceasefire now, then they'll have to stop short of, of destroying Hamas. Hamas will have time to to regroup or whatever. And you know, obviously, if you stop bombing, that's going to stop the wanton destruction that is is being sort of mated on, on Gaza. And presumably one of the consequences of that, yes, there's the civilian casualties, but presumably they are to some degree um, damaging Hamas infrastructure. So if we were to have a, a ceasefire now, what would be your idea of what then would happen? Would it be the case that Israel should negotiate with Hamas? Or is it an idea that sort of like you, you try and remove Hamas from governing potential in Gaza but not by military means? I mean, what would you see as the next steps were a ceasefire to be agreed? First of all, let's be very clear. Israel is negotiating with Hamas right now. They're negotiating with Hamas through intermediaries for a prisoner exchange, and Israel has been in negotiations with Hamas throughout much of this period. So the idea that negotiating with Hamas is some sort of a red line that Israel could never accept, Israel has continuously 
had contacts with Hamas directly or indirectly. There's nothing new in that and nothing there that in any way, shape or form should be seen as an obstacle to a ceasefire. But if you get a ceasefire, uh, I think the argument you presented earlier on from some of the supporters of a ceasefire is actually, frankly, more honest. It is honest in the sense that they do want to continue to bomb uh, and destroy much of Gaza, whether it, it will achieve the destruction of Hamas or not is a completely different story. And that's why they don't want to have a ceasefire, because they want to continue to do as much damage as they can before either the United States or um, the United States, through pressure from the international community, puts a stop to it. But if there is a ceasefire, um, uh, there needs to obviously, after that, be uh, an international diplomatic process to be able to move it away from just a ceasefire to a more long-standing uh, peace or at least uh, uh, cessation of violence from both sides. That is necessary. The reason why folks are some folks are continuing to press on and oppose a ceasefire is because of, in my view, a questionable assumption that there is such a thing of actually destroying Hamas militarily. Even if that organization is destroyed. We have from the experience in Mosul, in Iraq, from Afghanistan and elsewhere, great knowledge, including Israeli experience in Lebanon in 1982, which is that even if you go in and you manage to take out the top leadership of a, an organization that has conducted attacks against you, but you are then not coupling that with an actual peace process to address the root cause of this issue, which is an ongoing occupation, of Palestinian territories, then all you will achieve most likely, and in most cases, is that, that that one organization will morph into a new, oftentimes far more radical organization. You may destroy Hamas, but you will get Hamas 2.0. There was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq before the US invasion. And there was no ISIS in Iraq after a massive bombing campaign to destroy Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So we have seen that these military-only type of solutions have only made matters worse, only radicalized populations on both sides, and only created fertile ground for even more radical and more violent organizations to emerge out of that debacle. The, that the rest of the world should once again allow for this strategy to be pursued at a death rate far greater than previous conflicts in terms of civilian deaths. Um, and expect a different result um, is, is just mind-boggling. And it's not surprising to me to see that so many countries around the world, at least outside of the West, are not signing up for this. And finally, I just want to get your view on China's role in this. I know Xi Jinping has been in, in the US this week speaking to Joe Biden. I mean, it, it seems, again, this, this may be a sort of superficial perspective for me, but it doesn't seem as if China have been you know, too interested in the Middle East. I mean, are they, are they a player in, in what's going on in Gaza right now, or are they sort of, sort of just keeping out of it? So early on, um, you could see that the Chinese were looking to see whether there was an opportunity for them to enter this diplomatically. But they were not looking to enter it diplomatically in order to embarrass the United States. At least that's my read based on conversations with Chinese diplomats. They were looking to see ways that they could actually partner with the United States uh, in order to calm down the situation and saw this as a potential opportunity, not just to be able to achieve something in the Middle East, but more importantly for them to be able to achieve something in their bilateral relationship with Washington in which their aim is to show the United States 
that the U.S. and China teaming up, if the U.S. is willing to treat China as an equal, they, they're a lot can be achieved in terms of stability and peace in the world. And by that, dispel this notion that the rise of China is a threat to global order and stability. Now, I've not seen any appetite on the American side to include the Chinese uh, on such a thing. And I personally don't think that um, the Chinese have many cards to play in the Middle East right now. Uh, they have managed to do a mediation between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but much of the work was actually done by others before them coming into the picture, but they did play a role. But to do something as complex as this is going to take a, a tremendous amount of diplomatic skill and knowledge and relationships, relationships that uh, uh, China currently does not have. But if you just wanted to play the spoiler and further show how isolated the world, the United States is in global opinion in terms of the position it has taken on this issue, it would be an extremely easy thing for the Chinese to do. And so far, they have not shown any interest in doing so. Uh, Trita Parsi, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Let's go to our next story. Israel's lies about their war on Gaza are getting so outrageous that even the BBC are calling them out. This is Roz Atkins pointing out the holes in Israel's story about the Al-Shifa hospital hiding a Hamas HQ. This IDF animation posted in late October claims to represent a Hamas tunnel system underneath the hospital. But having been inside Al-Shifa since early Wednesday, Israel's yet to produce evidence of the tunnels. It has allowed the BBC and Fox News to film at the hospital, though only locations of Israel's choice. This is what they found. Israel also released its own seven-minute video, which BBC Verify has analysed. A watch, visible in that video, suggests it was filmed a few hours before the BBC arrived. And this IDF video was posted, then deleted, then reposted, this time without a section referring to an Israeli soldier who'd been held hostage. I don't know when this was used the last time. Also in the video, we see a room with an MRI machine. And if you zoom in, and we get some light over here. What you'll be able to see are is military equipment. The BBC was shown the same room. And what we see in the two videos doesn't precisely match. For example, there's one gun in the IDF video, two by the time of the BBC footage. Israel has told BBC Verify this is because more weaponry and terrorist assets were discovered throughout the day. And as always, an AK-47. Israel also says its video is a single shot with no edits. But this appears to be an edit. We don't know the reasons for that edit, nor how significant it is. The IDF, though, says suggestions it's manipulating the media are incorrect. The IDF video also shows military equipment in other locations, though we can't verify how it came to be there. And what we see in this IDF video doesn't equate to Israel's description of al-Shifa as an operational command center for Hamas. The US is using a different phrase, saying al-Shifa was used as a command and control node. That implies a much smaller facility. And as Israel makes the case for this operation, let's consider the Geneva Conventions, the foundations of the rules of war. They state that hospitals can lose their protection if they are used to commit acts harmful to the enemy. Israel believes Hamas has done this in al-Shifa and says that what's been discovered so far is just the start. 
Well, that was really important. That was a really good report by the BBC. And this really matters because, you know, Israel weren't just saying, oh, we need to bomb this hospital because there might be a a few rusty guns in there. They were saying this was a Hamas headquarters. And the reason they had to say that, right, is because international law, yes, it does say that hospitals can lose their protected status if they are being used for military purposes. But it has to be proportionate. Anything you do you know, at any point in a war has to be proportionate. And so if you are going to make a hospital unusable, right, if you're if you're going to enter a hospital, if you're going to bomb parts of a hospital, you need to have a very, very valuable military target there, right? Really valuable military target. If it's just a room with a few rusty guns, that is not a valuable military target. That is not the kind of military target that would justify attacking a hospital. So a lot has been rested on that claim, right? Joe Biden, we've seen Joe Biden say, oh, he's got the intelligence that there is a Hamas HQ under that hospital. And they've had since Wednesday there, so it's sort of at least 48 hours um, on since they sort of gained control of the hospital. And all they can provide is yeah, some rusty guns, which, as um, Ros Atkins explained there, seem to have moved. <laughs> you know, They bring the media in here, oh, you've got these two guns here, it was one before. Um, I'm joined by Kieran Andreu. Um, welcome to the show. It does seem significant that sort of even the BBC are now sort of calling out IDF lies, isn't it? It does. First of all, thanks for having me on, Michael. Um, I think what it says, or what it shows, first of all, is that Israeli propaganda is so stretched that it has seriously under-resourced its military propaganda, or at least I hope that that's what it suggests. The claims that are being made are growing increasingly ridiculous and the so-called evidence to try and back it up seems to be growing ever more tenuous and i think it's instructive that you know journalists i'm sure at the bbc and other large mainstream institutions are willing to go along with a certain line for a certain distance. But one would hope that at a certain point, in the end, they are journalists. And they do they did presumably have some, you know, aspirations as a gadfly or as somebody who could at least try and uncover truth at some point in their careers. Uh, coarsened though those ideals probably have been made by working for institutions like BBC and Sky and so on. So I think what's happening is as Israel's claims uh, and the evidence grows ever more tenuous, the more insulting it is, essentially, to journalists to be shown this kind of dreck and expected uh, and, and have them expect uh, to believe that they'll believe it and that they will report it the way that the Israeli military hopes it will be reported. I also was reminded watching the piece, uh, Michael, of when Tony Benn went on air, I think about 15 years ago now, during the Operation Cast-led bombardment of Gaza. And he refused to not read the Gaza Appeal telephone number. What he said, live on air, so it was uncontrollable essentially, was very instructive. He said, I've been at the BBC all day long, and nobody that I've spoken to agrees with what the BBC editorial line is doing on this. Nobody agrees that the number should be uh, concealed from the public. So these institutions are one thing, their editorial line is often another. And I think 
if there is a fraying going on at the moment, I think it's it's certainly being helped along by the fact that Israeli intel- Israeli evidence and military propaganda, particularly the stuff that we're seeing filter out, is becoming increasingly preposterous. Be interesting to see if we're seeing the same thing with some of the American networks. I mean, I saw on Twitter the other day a CNN report, which was you know it was by one of their embedded journalists with the IDF, which basically just repeated everything the IDF had told them. So it might be the case that sort of the BBC is more critical than some of those American networks, which are probably even more influential because obviously it is the Americans who 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 really um, have the ability to stop this happening. Let's go to our next story. Mehdi Hassan is one of the toughest interviewers around, and this week he spoke to Netanyahu's advisor, Mark Regev. Now, we'll show you three key moments from the interview. Um, First, this is what happened after Mark Regev says the Gazan Health Ministry's death toll figures shouldn't be trusted. You say Hamas's numbers, I should point out, just pull up on the screen. In the last two major Gaza conflicts, 2009 and 2014, the Israeli military's death tolls matched Hamas's health ministry death toll. So, and the UN human rights groups all agree that those numbers are credible. But look, your wider point is true. Can I challenge that? Will you allow me to challenge that, please? Can I just challenge that? I'd like to challenge that. I'll try to be as brief as you are, sir. Uh, Those numbers are provided by Hamas. There's no independent verification. And secondly, more importantly, you have no idea how many of them are Hamas uh, terrorists, combatants, and how many are civilians. Hamas would have you believe that they're all civilians, that they're all children. And here we have to say something that isn't said enough. Hamas, until now, we're, we're destroying their military machine, and with that, we're eroding their control. But up until now, they've been in control of the Gaza Strip. And as a result, they control all the images coming out of Gaza. Have you seen one picture of a single dead Hamas terrorist in the fighting in Gaza? Not one. Is that by accident or is that because Hamas can control... Hamas can Mark, control the information. You asked me a question and you Gaza. said you would be brief. I have, I haven't. You're right, but I have seen lots of children with my own lying eyes being pulled from the rubble. Uh, because so they're the pictures don't... Hamas wants you to see. Exactly and also my because point. They're, dead, they're Mark. the pictures also Hamas because, wants. But there are also people no, that your government has that, killed. You accept that, right? You've killed children, or do you deny? No, that? I do not. I do not. I do not. First of all, you don't know how those people died. Those children. Oh, wow. First of all, we don't want to see a we single do. child are... killed. Well, that's just how extreme Israel's argument have got, right? So we've done segments on this before when it comes to the numbers coming from Gaza's health ministry, which, by the way, has lots of people in it who aren't from Hamas, right? There's also international um, monitors in there. Many of the Gazan health ministry was officials who were carried over from um, the Fatah, well, from when Fatah controlled Gaza. So it, it's not obvious that this is just some lackey for Hamas. And as Mehdi Hassan pointed out there, um, in the past, the Gazan health ministry has always been accurate when it has given the numbers of people who were killed in Israeli attacks. Also, um, they have provided the names and um, ID numbers for, for the people they say have died. So there is lots of reason to believe the Gazan Health Ministry's numbers. But what you saw there is how extreme the argument is from Israel. Because they're not only saying, don't believe what Hamas tell you. They're saying, don't believe what you can see with your own eyes. Right? We can sit, we've all seen with our own eyes, right? The images of children dead, you know? The images of people who are killed after an ambulance is bombed, is is hit with an airstrike, you know, outside a hospital. We've all seen that. And Israel know that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's problematic for them that the whole world has seen the consequences of their bombardment. And they want you to say, ah, yes, well, you might be able to see this as a dead child, but Hamas controlled whether or not you saw that dead child. So therefore, the child isn't really dead. I mean, it, 
it, it doesn't make any sense. It's incredibly disrespectful, by the way, to, to all of the dead children. But I mean, more significantly, it's it, it's just so warped that Israel think they can kill 4,000 kids. And then even when there is video evidence of those 4,000 kids, they can say, well, uh, we can't trust that video because Hamas. We've seen it, right? We've also got aerial footage that shows us that they've destroyed half of Gaza, basically the entirety of Gaza City, right? We can see it with our own eyes. That's not the aerial footage, the satellite imagery isn't controlled by Hamas. I don't know how he's going to say that that's not really the case. Let's go back to the interview now. The context for this next clip is the Israeli military claiming to have found a chart under a hospital showing a rotor with the names of terrorists on it. So it was supposed to be the names of terrorists whose job it was to um, oversee a hostage. Now, in fact, the chart just showed the days of the weeks. So the, the, the names were Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They weren't names of, of people. Um, let's see how Mehdi Hassan challenges Regev on that claim. True, Why I'm did your sure military spokesman on Monday point to a calendar in Arabic and say, these are the names of terrorists on them? That's false. Can you accept that here and now? I, 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 I'm not aware of the, uh, the, the incident. Let's put up the so image. We have the image. You have I, no I can't read Arabic. It doesn't help me. I have well, no comment. You, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with the Does incident. your spokesman but, uh, read you, Hang on, I have a question, Matty. You're a journalist. Have you made a professional mistake ever? Not no, intentionally, but have you made a professional I'm, I'm, mistake? I'm, exactly, and I own up to it. Have so you can made you ever, a mistake? So can, can, not so can you own up to so, the mistake? So now? if I made, it, I've made mistakes, you've made mistakes, but there's a difference between making an honest mistake and between Hamas that deliberately exaggerates numbers Unde to suit its propaganda purposes. There's a huge Understood. difference. So it sounds like it's like it's, 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 so, so hold on, hold on. You said propaganda. Can we just deal with your colleague Ophir Gendelman's tweet? It's still up seven days later. Why has it not come down? It's a Lebanese short film. We can put it on screen. It's not Palestinians faking their own injuries. Can we own up to that mistake and take that down? Is that not propaganda? I, uh, uh, once again, I understand that that was also a mistake. And, so why is it still uh, up seven I'll days speak later? to Offer about it if you like. I'll speak to Offer about it if you like. He's Great. a friend of mine okay. and a colleague. I quite like him. He's a good man. He's actually very effective. Why is he effective? Well, he's he speaks not, he's, a he's mother tongue level Arabic. Tweet, Mark. I, I agree. He made a mistake. So the argument there was, yes, um, you, you've pointed out two mistakes we've made. Um, but the difference between us and Hamas is we admit to our mistakes. Now, the flaw in the argument there is that they made a hell of a lot of mistakes. They keep making them, right? And they all are for propaganda purposes. The other obvious problem is that that Israeli official who tweeted that video, which he called Pallywood, you know, so offensive, saying, oh, this is Palestinians faking um, deaths from airstrikes. Everyone knew immediately, right, that that was footage from backstage of a Lebanese movie. And that Israeli official has left it up for a week, right? So th there was no deletion and apology. He said, oh, actually, yeah, I know, I, I knew that all along, but actually, I I've shared this because some Palestinians are sharing this, saying it is Gaza. No evidence of that as well, by the way. The other thing he says, the difference between us is we admit our mistakes. Hamas doesn't admit their mistakes. Hamas is exaggerating the death toll for um, ideological reasons, and they won't admit it. Now, maybe the reason they won't admit it is because they're not doing it, right? And I don't say that because I think Hamas are this incredibly honest organization. You know, this is a conflict. It's quite likely that both sides will engage in you know what's called an information war. They will try and shape um, what information is released or is not released to benefit their side in a conflict. Completely normal. That will be happening, I'm sure. But he has picked an example, exaggerating death figures, which just, there is no credibility to suggest that they are doing that. Why? Because the Americans, American intelligence thinks that more people have died than the Gazan Health Ministry has announced. And there was a report recently that Israeli intelligence thought that potentially double the amount of people have been killed 
as the Gazan Health Ministry had announced. And if you look at all the footage from Gaza, if you look at the satellite imagery that shows that 50% of the buildings have been destroyed, it's no wonder that that many people have been killed. So he's sort of, he, he, he's picked this example, well, we're more honest than Israel because we admit our mistakes. Hamas won't admit their mistake when it comes to the death toll. Well, maybe it's not a mistake, right? We, we have every, every reason to believe it's not a mistake. Well, this is our final clip from the interview, which I think was actually the most significant moment in the whole thing. We're out of time. Well, I'll give you one very straightforward last yes or no question for you. Joe Biden wants a two-state solution in the Middle East. He wants it sooner rather than later, he says, to get peace in the Middle East. Does your government, does Prime Minister Netanyahu support a two-state solution? Yes or no? I, I think it's a time now for war. It's a time for victory. And when that's over with Hamas defeated, with Hamas destroyed, when, you, when you've taken out the most extreme enemy of peace, that'll create room, I think, for more moderate and pragmatic voices to fill the vacuum, and that'll be good for peace. So that's a yes or a no on a two-state solution? I gave you a good answer, I thought. I mean, he gave him a telling answer, right? He gave him a telling answer. Again, that shouldn't be a surprise because we, we know, you know, he's an advisor to Netanyahu. Netanyahu doesn't want a two-state solution. He's wanted a one-state solution the whole time, which is kicking the Arabs out of historic Palestine, right? We've shown you quotes to that effect before. And we're going to show you more again, in fact, on this show on another segment. But that has been their stated position. But we are in this sort of warped, sort of back-to-front reality where everyone in the West pretends that the Israeli government are desperate for a two-state solution. And then this incredibly belligerent organization, Hamas, are against it. Now, of course, Hamas have done some terrible things. Uh, atrocities were committed on October the 7th. But Hamas is no more belligerent when it comes to what outcome they want than the Israelis, right? Hamas, I mean, there is evidence actually that they have been willing to settle for a two-state solution on 1967 borders. But within their, you know, within their sort of documentation, within their um, uh, constitution, for example, they aren't sort of supporting a two-state solution in, in the same way that the Palestinian Authority and Fatah are. But neither are Israel. And so everyone says, oh, you can't possibly negotiate with Hamas because Hamas want to uh, get rid of Israel. They want the whole thing to be Palestine. Well, then why, why don't you make the, exactly the same argument about Likud? Why should the Palestinians be expected to negotiate with Likud when Likud also don't want a two-state solution? I think the other reason it's telling is because, you know, Israel are always saying, we need to get rid of Hamas so then we can negotiate peace. Well, he's saying, we need to get rid of Hamas so then we can negotiate with some people who are compliant, that they will agree to something which doesn't even involve a Palestinian state, right? He wants some Palestinian banter stands, and he wants to make sure that they have used their full military might to take out anyone who might disagree with that essentially is how that reads to me. So uh, the carpet bombing of Gaza is, is not about finding a, a partner that can come to the table and negotiate. It is about creating new facts on the ground to make it more likely that the Palestinians will completely capitulate to Likud's vision of a one-state solution where Jewish Israelis have supremacy from the river to the sea. Obviously, we hear loads of people come, oh, for, if you say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that's anti-Semitic. Well, day after day after day, we have politicians from a party whose constitution says, this is Likud I'm talking about here, Netanyahu's party, says that from the river to the sea, the whole land should be Israel. It's completely topsy-turvy. And everyone in the public should know this, right? But uh, I think if you ask the majority of the public, they'd say, oh, Hamas, Hamas don't want a two-state solution, um, but Israel do. No completely false. Um, an announcement for you, um, regular viewers will know we are trying to increase our regular subscribers by 5 
5,000, so our, our paying supporters, sorry, um, by 5,000, so we can get in tip-top shape um, to continue reporting um, on the Gaza war and also for a, a likely general election next year. Um, we had a sort of in-between goal, what do you call it? A sort of in-between, I'm going to call it an in-between goal to get to 3,000 new supporters, and now we have hit it. Um, this is a big deal because it means we're over halfway to our final target. Um, of course, thank you to all 3,056 people who have become a new paying supporter to Navarro Media. If you are one already, thank you so much. Um, you have made this show possible and you continue to make these shows possible. Um, if you haven't already and are considering or willing um, to sign up as a supporter, you can go to NavarroMedia.com forward slash support. Um, you can sign up for as little as £1 per month. Um, the link to that, as ever, is in the description. Let's go to our next story. In recent weeks, Piers Morgan has used his show to give a platform to a huge range of voices on the war on Gaza. Um, it hasn't always made for comfortable viewing, but it's never been dull. And now Owen Jones has appeared on the show. Now, it began with this exchange about what's currently happening at Al Shifa Hospital. Babies right now mm. are gasping for breath yes. and suffocating. Mm. We've had several nurses and patients shot dead. In fact, this whole hospital has been described by medical staff as a mortuary. But you don't the, know. Just oh, quickly, oh, oh, when a hospital, on. just quickly, when yeah. a hospital becomes a mass grave, yeah. when dozens of decomposing bodies mm. have to be buried in a mass grave in a hospital, we're talking. What you said? Can I just quote something you said about sure. about Putin? And, and I think this was very wise. You said. In March 2022, I'm seeing a genocidal monster killing women and babies in maternity hospitals as we sit back and let them do it. Why was it so disgraceful? But you were right. You were right to well, be Well, here's the difference. Why, why, me, why when you see this hospital, is there not the same fury? Let me explain. Uh, because the two are, in my opinion, morally very different. In one case, Vladimir Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine, he was committing war crimes having illegally invaded the... Oh, wait a second, let me finish. Having invaded a sovereign democratic country. Here, it was Israel that was invaded by a vast number of terrorists who uh, murdered over 1,500 innocent men, women, children. They kidnapped 240 people, including babies, children, yeah, Holocaust yes. survivors. So my point is, morally, there is a massive difference. Hold on, hold on. Morally, yeah. it's a massive difference. Now, the question of the hospital... Wait a sec. The question of the hospitals is this to me. They have so far produced some evidence of Hamas operating inside the hospital. For me, so far, as a journalist trying to be fair yeah. and impartial, okay. I don't think, as you've heard me say to Mark Reggett, I don't think I've seen enough evidence here, which says to me this was a sprawling well, there's a, there's a, there's command centre. But there is a moral difference between what Putin's doing in Ukraine no. and what Israel's doing to no. defend itself against Hamas, hold, isn't there? Hold on. Isn't hold, there? No, 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 sorry, this is the difference, okay, if you, if you want to talk about that or, or, or trying to separate them. For a Ukrainian ordinary civilian, Mm. being killed mm -hmm. or put an ordinary Palestinian child being killed. Both equally awful. None of them, none of them did anything wrong. No. We agree on that, don't yes, we? Yes, we do. We absolutely agree yes, on we that. we do. Now, when, we're talk when you repeatedly denounced Putin for his genocidal behaviour in Ukraine, yeah. do you stand by that? Do you yes, think that's a genocide? Absolutely. Well, it doesn't matter what the, what the basis mm. for what the operation... Of course it does. No, 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 no. No, no, no it does. So I think there are, there are two interesting issues playing out there. So one is the point Owen is making, which is that killing civilians is killing civilians and war crimes are war crimes, right? Whoever does it and for whatever reason. So if Morgan thinks that Russia were committing a genocide, then he would have to say the same about Israel. Their actions are very similar. Of course, if Piers Morgan were being consistent. 
On the other hand, Piers Morgan is saying that the reason for the bombing of civilians does matter. If you were bombing civilians in self-defence, that's fine. Or at least it's not genocide, as he said Putin was committing. Now, Owen is saying correctly, genocidal actions don't stop being genocidal just because they were quote-unquote provoked, right? It, it doesn't matter what led you to take those actions. If the actions are genocidal, it's a genocide, right? Again, I normally defer to sort of scholars of, of genocide when it comes to this issue. We're talking here about consistency. There's another big difference here, though, between the Russia and Israel examples, which I think is very relevant here. Now, Russia illegally invaded Ukraine. It was very clearly a war of aggression, and they went on to kill a lot of civilians. Now, Russia said it was a war of self-defense, but it wasn't. Right? <laughs> that was not a war of self-defense, and Piers Morgan rightly um, called it out. Now, he called it genocide. We can agree or disagree if that's the case, but we're talking about consistency here. Now, Israel also says their bombardment is self-defense. And as Piers Morgan is pointing out, that is more plausible potentially on the face of it. Hamas did commit a terrible attack on Israeli citizens. And the argument goes, invading Gaza to wipe out Hamas was the only reasonable response. But that's where the argument falls down. And it falls down for this reason. Israel can't declare a war of self-defense against Gaza because Gaza isn't an independent country, right? It's been occupied by Israel for 56 years, and you can't declare a war on a country you are occupying, right? Very important for us to keep that in mind. Everyone keeps acting as if sort of there are these two independent states, and one state has attacked the other, and so the other has the right to sort of fight back. Gaza isn't a country, right? Gaza is a territory which has been under Israeli occupation for 56 years. Now, you'll see some sort of Twitter trolls telling you, oh, no, they withdrew from Gaza in 2005. Now, on one sense, that is true, right? They, they withdrew settlers and they withdrew from the military from Gaza. Obviously, at the same time, they were massively expanding their settlements in the West Bank, which Israel thinks is more, is more valuable. But um, under international law, and as the UN recognizes, they still occupy Gaza because they control what goes in it and what comes out of it. They control the airspace. Gaza is not in any way independent, which means you can't declare war against it because it, 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 it's not a state. All right, anyway, um, let's go back to the debate. What Israel's doing is not genocide. There's a difference between what Israel, you could say both Israel and Hamas have engaged in genocidal and murderous rhetoric. No. And I'll give you an example. No, yes, no, they you, are. No, you can't. Benjamin Netanyahu, no, you, I can't. Can. Is it uncensored or not? Yes, let me okay, you can say let it. Me quote, let me quote what the, the Israeli authorities have said. Go on. Benjamin Netanyahu, when he quoted Amalek, Mm. The scriptures. What does Amalek say? Mm. It, he, he quotes Amalek when they attacked the Israelites. And what God told the Israelites to do was to destroy every kill, every man, woman, child, and livestock. Mm. If I would put it to you, an Islamist leader was quoting a similarly genocidal passage from the Quran, you would not, I would say, I respond? hesitate. Can I respond? Well, no, no, what, what? we haven't just, no, but you've had we'll a lot. Respond to that I'm point. gonna respond just quickly. Israeli officials said mm. that Gaza will end up being a city of tents with no building standing, mm. that they are that they are attacking for damage, not for accuracy. The agricultural minister, Avidikti, he said, we are rolling out a new Nakba. A Nakba is mm. the mass expulsion, 700,000 mm. Palestinians in 1948. Mm. This is why hundreds of genocide scholars, people who are actually, unlike you and I, mm. experts in the field of genocide mm. studies, fear okay. that a genocide is taking place. So the difference between Israel Let and Hamas now. is Hamas does not have the capacity to wipe out no. Israel. Israel is wiping Gaza the point. off the map. But that's that, the point. But that, no, you've actually exposed the weakness in your argument. Israel does have the ability to kill everyone in Gaza tomorrow, and they're not doing it. Oh, In fact, well, hang on. 
what they're doing, and it's indisputable, they are issuing a number of warnings repeatedly to people to go no. south, wait, and stay out of northern Gaza, right? And then they're pulverizing it with airstrikes, and now they've gone in on the ground, and they're waging battle with Hamas fighters, terrorists, yeah, right? Yeah. No, hang on, hang on. So my point is this. Israel could, if they wanted to, kill everyone in Gaza. They decided not to do so that. Now, that's a very strange definition of genocide, right? Something is over uh, is only genocidal if you are using every single means you can to kill everyone. So if you're using your full cache of weapons to kill a people. So, you know, it, because Israel could kill all Gazans, um, obviously because they control what goes in, what goes out, they are in a position to put it under siege. Um, they do have enough weaponry to kill everyone. I mean, they're using a lot of that weaponry, right? Um, but they're giving people warning to leave, even if sometimes that's completely implausible. Um, they do have the power to be to be committing more harm in Gaza than they currently are. But again, this is about consistency. And as Owen pointed out, Piers Morgan said that Putin is committing a genocide in, in Ukraine because he was targeting civilians. Now, I don't know Piers Morgan, is, 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 well, he'd have to have been asleep his entire life, wouldn't he? Because this has been the case for a long time. But Russia has nuclear weapons, right? If Russia wanted to kill more people in Ukraine, they could. They'd drop a nuclear bomb. Now, you could say, oh, but, you know, they would if they could, but they can't because they'd have so much international opprobrium. Now, that's exactly the reason why Israel isn't killing everyone in Gaza. You really think that if they could do it without anyone noticing, Israel wouldn't kill all 2.2 million people in Gaza. I mean, if you listen to the language they're using, if you see how they're treating people, right, they are getting as close to the edge as they possibly can of a situation whereby the Americans couldn't possibly back them. Where, you know, where the Americans would have to say, this is too much. Israel are doing as much damage as they possibly can without completely ruining the diplomatic relationships they have. So this idea that, oh no, Israel, Israel are being fairly restrained, actually, because while they have um, killed more civilians in this war in such a short period of time than we've seen in recent history, um, they could be killing more. They could be killing more. Kieran, what do you make of that defense? You know, this, this, this can't be genocidal because Israel, if they wanted, could be killing more. I think it's, uh, I, I won't be taking the Pierce Morgan definition of genocide anytime soon. Um, I don't think any legal scholars will be either. Uh, Palestinians, such as myself, know that this is genocide. And if it's not just, it, it, it's the marriage of the rhetoric with the actions. Srebrenica, at Srebrenica, 8,000 people were murdered including many children. It's rightly commemorated and recognized as one of the darkest chapters in European history. As we know, almost 12,000 people have been murdered in Gaza in the past six weeks alone, including almost 5,000 children. So it would be telling to ask Piers Morgan whether he considers Srebrenica a genocide or an attempted genocide. Uh, Never has the definition of genocide had to meet such a threshold that those with the power might wipe out every single member of that race. Um, and if they don't, it falls short of the definition of a genocide. It's clearly somebody who has no clue what they're talking about trying to move the goalposts. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, his, his point as well about it being very morally different, to use his words, to Ukraine strikes me as utterly transparent. Again, 27,000 Ukrainians have tragically died, appallingly been killed since February 2022. 
you don't need to be a mass genius to know that six weeks, 11,000 people dying in six weeks means that as a, as a percentage and relative to time, very many more civilians have been killed in Gaza than were killed and have been killed in Ukraine since February 2022. The only distinguishing mark in all of this, really, if Pierce Morgan were pressed, and I think Owen did a great job, could only be that, I'm sorry to say this, it's brown people dying and not Ukrainians. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that is, you know, I, I think that could have a lot to do with it, right? I mean, also, it's, it, it's just much easier as well to sort of pile in with opposition to a state when you were falling in line with Western foreign policy than if you were going against it. Let's go to our next story. As the army pulverizes Gaza, Israeli politicians have been bragging about their plan to drive Gazans from their land. Now, those genocidal statements have been ignored by much of the Western media. And one mainstream host went so far as to abruptly end an interview instead of hearing the truth. Now, this was the first part of the conversation between Peter Oborn and Talk TV's Vanessa Feltz. Oborn here was speaking from the West Bank, um, and they were speaking before MPs in Westminster had their ceasefire vote. This vote is taking place. I wonder if, from your vantage point, pretty near the heat of the action, it all seems like a ludicrous farce possibly written by Jonathan Swift, that they think it makes any difference at all what they decide to vote on this issue. Do you know, it's completely the opposite. I'm really, it's very, whenever I talk to Palestinians, wherever they may be in sort of remote villages being threatened by settlers, or as this morning with a senior official in Nablus, they, they're fascinated by the vote. They're incredibly encouraged by the marches, by the way. They're not forgotten in the, in the world. And so what the way Britain votes today in Parliament does matter to them, although, of course, they are in despair. The Palestinians I speak to at the position of the British government, they really find this extraordinary. Britain taking, they see it as Britain taking its leave along with America from the civilised world. That's how they see it. I thought that answer was really important because we've seen this all week, right? Sort of commentators, even politicians sort of saying, oh, you know, this whole vote, this whole fuss that people are making about whether or not MPs vote, vote for a ceasefire. It's just um, the narcissism of small differences because Britain doesn't have an effect anyway on what Israel do. So, you know, this is just self-indulgent behavior. Now, Vanessa Feltz asked a very loaded question there to Peter Oborn, right? Presumably everyone in Palestine thinks this is ridiculous that people in Britain are talking about a ceasefire. He's like, no, actually, they really care, right? They really care. Now, Peter Oborn, obviously, much more in touch with the people of Palestine than the commentators we've been seeing on, on Twitter and in newspaper pages over the past week because he's there. And also it makes sense, right? Because Palestinians know that the only thing which is going to stop a genocide in Gaza is international pressure, right? Now, Britain is not America, but Britain has a seat on the UN Security Council, right? Britain is not America. It's also not Luxembourg. We, we are a significant country. And if we had voted for a ceasefire, that would have made a real difference to the people of Gaza. I mean, I also think there's something a bit patronizing potentially about Vanessa Feld's line of questioning. Because on the one hand, you could say, oh, they don't care because, you know, um, you know, Britain is not significant enough. On the other, I think, you know, surely they're just worried about where to get bread. You know, they're not thinking about big political questions. No, <laughs> Palestinians are very, very politically engaged, right? They've had to be. And so the idea that they won't be following this, I find somewhat condescending and patronizing. And obviously, Peter Oborn dealt with that very well. Um, let's go back to the interview. And would you like to explain why that is? Why they see it that way? Well, I think a lot of people watching the programme now will see it. You know, how many four and a half thousand children dead 
more, more than 11,000 civilians dead, tens of thousands injured, maimed for life, traumatized. Um, you listen to the genocidal talk from the senior Israeli politicians. Um, it, it, it's... It, it's, it's it's completely baffling to people. Isn't, isn't but in, isn't uh, isn't your description of genocidal talk actually not accurate? Because uh, senior Israeli politicians don't talk about eradicating the Palestinian race. Far from it. Not in the way that Hamas, of course, talks about eradicating Israel and every single Jew in the country. They don't do that. They talk about wiping out Hamas, the terrorist organization at whose centre is the tenet that what they exist to do is wipe out Israel. And of course, all of this in response to an unprovoked massacre of innocents, including babies, children, young people at a festival. So, so, so the idea that there's genocidal talk by senior IDF members is, is not accurate or true, is it? Now, you've, if you've been watching this show over the past days and weeks, you'll know Vanessa Feltz is completely wrong here. What Peter Oborn says is absolutely true. And that challenge, I think, was offensively ignorant, quite frankly. Now, to show you again a few examples, this is from an Israeli defense official. Gaza will eventually turn into a city of tents. There will be no buildings. Now, that is not someone um, talking about wiping out Hamas. That is about someone making Gaza City unlivable. Now, we've got a quote from an advisor to the defense ministry. Israel needs to create a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, compelling tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands to seek refuge in Egypt or the Gulf. The entire population of Gaza will either move to Egypt or move to the Gulf. Now, again, that's not about wiping out Hamas. It literally says the entire population of Gaza. We can go now to the finance minister of Israel, so very high up in the cabinet, um, he said, the acceptance of refugees by the countries of the world who truly care about Gazans' well-being with the support and generous economic support of the international community, including the state of Israel, is the only solution that will bring an end to the suffering of Jews and Arabs both. So he's saying the only solution to this conflict is everyone leaving Gaza. That is genocidal talk. Now, this was said by the deputy speaker of the Knesset. We need to put them, so the Palestinians, on boats and send them to wherever will be good for them. They want it in Scotland. We'll hand them over, right? Now, you hear people saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And they say, oh, this is talking about expelling the Jews. Now, it's not. It's everyone who chants it, or nearly everyone who chants it, means a secular democratic state where you have one member, one vote. Now, you can say that's realistic or not, but it's not genocidal. This is a leading Israeli politician in the governing party literally saying, we're going to send all the Palestinians on boats and send them wherever. Now, he is talking about driving a people into the sea very explicitly. Um, of course, we know Netanyahu has himself um, talked in genocidal language. He's referred to Gaza as Amalek, which means all men, women, and children should be killed. And I can't show you this particular passage enough. It's from a book by Max Hastings written 40 years ago. At Bibi Netanyahu's dinner table in Jerusalem, I listened with crawling dismay to Bibi talking about the future of his country. In the next war, if we do it right, we'll have a chance to get all the Arabs out, he said. We can clear the West Bank, sort out Jerusalem. Now, that is the definition of genocidal language, right? These statements are not talking about wiping out Hamas. They are talking about clearing Palestinians out of Gaza. Vanessa Feltz could not be more wrong. Um, Peter Robon, though, very articulate guy. Let's see um, how he dealt with that question and see what happened next. Sorry, I, I, I don't... Thanks for the lecture, Vanessa. It's a I, I, I greatly enjoyed it. But um, if you just look at the comments made by uh, the senior Israeli politicians, you know what is it uh, that Galant the the uh, said? Um, you know, he's talking about human animals. 
listen to the words from Smothrich, who runs the West Bank. I mean, this is really terrifying stuff. But they're and not they referring to Palestinian families or children or the babies in the hospitals Human for, whom, for whom they were handing I'm in talking... incubators today, are they? They're not talking about them. They're talking they're about talking the terrorists about... who beheaded at... babies and who, I mean, Look, I, I, you, had, you, I had Noam Saggy in the studio Look, the Vanessa, other day. I, I, and, and, I, I come and, on at great difficulty from the West Bank, yes. which is un, in a town which is under siege by settlers and IDF. And I didn't come on to be lectured by you. Thanks for it, though. I, you, you asked me a question, how did the Palestinians see it? And I sought to give you an answer. I said that they were very interested in today's vote, but they were in despair about the government's position. And if you pay attention to the media, which you evidently don't, Vanessa felt you will see there has been genocidal talk by Israeli politicians. I certainly do. I do. People. I certainly do pay close attention to it. And thank you very much indeed for the lecture not. that you have given me, which, which I, I appreciate with as much alacrity and enthusiasm as you appreciate what you consider to be my interviewing you. However, I'm presenting the programme and I can't allow you to stand on any soapbox and give a diatribe without challenging you. That's my job. Were I not to do it, I'd have to take a milk round instead. Thank you so much, though, for joining us at Great Difficulty. And we won't detain you any longer because I realise that you Thanks have had to, you've had to undergo various obstacles to join us. And we do appreciate it. Thank you so much. I mean, I thought that final point, thanks for your curiosity about what's going in the West Bank, was very telling. Because, I mean, what Vanessa Feltz there displayed was an intense lack of curiosity especially curiosity when it comes to things which might challenge her prior assumptions, right? So it's unsayable on Vanessa Feltz's show that Israeli politicians are using genocidal language. That was beyond the pale for her. Now, beyond the pale for her is apparently not Israeli politicians using genocidal language, because we know that's happened. If she's been following the news as she says she has, we assume she must be aware of that. I mean, she's not following the news as, as much as we think she should, or she should if she's hosting that show, or if she's going to sort of give such a challenge to Peter O'Born, who clearly knows a lot more about the situation than she does. Um, and then he just gets cut off. Um, Kieran, I thought that was kind of the height of unprofessionalism, but also interesting in terms of what you can and can't say on mainstream television at the moment. Indeed, indeed. Um, reflections on that. Well, I'll just speak generally, uh, Michael. I mean, first of all, one doesn't need to read Max Hastings' book, though good though I'm sure it is, to find Netanyahu being very open about his genocidal and ethnic cleansing uh, views of Palestinians. First, you can find him on YouTube in 1978 talking about how there are, quote, 22 Arab countries and all that would be required to make the world right again would be to expel the Palestinians and they'd be absorbed into those 22 Arab countries rather than creating a 23rd Arab country. Um, and I note that across all the pieces we've had today, there's a very clear theme emerging, um, which I think is pretty telling, and that's genocide denial. You know, It's pretty obvious that there is a serious attempt to kick back against uh, what your guest earlier, Mr. Parsi, was talking about, which is that international public opinion, and I mentioned this last week on the show as well, has genuinely shifted. Governments may be slow on the uptake, and there are all sorts of other international relations-based uh, reasons as to why that might be the case. Nonetheless, I think all of the polling data, as well as, you know, infinite anecdotal data at this point implies that there is a gen very genuine shift. So all of the people that spend all of their time apologising, being apologists for, to make that more clear, 
for Israel's behavior over the past 20, 25 years and before are scrambling around to pick up the pieces. And I think uh, that leads us now inexorably to genocide denial at this point in in time. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think very well put. And I thought, you know, I thought that was very embarrassing, actually, for Vanessa Feltz. I, I just think to sort of have your your guest say something which is true, and you be offended by it, so you kick them off the show is is just somewhat unbelievable. Especially as you say, while you know something that looks a lot like a genocide is going on, right? The stakes are very high here. We're going to go to our final story, a little bit lighter. TikTok users this week discovered a new life changing author, Osama bin Laden. This morning, I read Letter to America, which is Osama bin Laden's letter to America explaining why he attacked Americans. And I am ashamed to say that I not only have never read this letter, but I didn't even know this letter existed. It's wild and everyone should read it. I need everyone to stop what they're doing right now and go read. It's literally two pages. Go read a letter to America. And please come back here and just let me know what you think, because I feel like I'm going through like an existential crisis right now. And a lot of people are. So I just need someone else to be feeling this too. I will never look at life the same. I will never look at this country the same. I will never. I, please read it. And if you have read it, let me know if you are also going through an existential crisis in this very moment, because in the last 20 minutes, my entire viewpoint on the entire life I have believed and I have lived has changed. And actually, before you even read the letter, I did want to mention, in reading the letter, I could only think of this tweet that I saw the other day. Under settler colonialism, any kind of resistance is branded as terrorist because the only acceptable violence is violence by the occupier. It's actually so mind-fucking to me that terrorism has been sold as this idea to the American people and honestly just so many Western inhabitants within certain nations that this group of people, this random group of people just suddenly wakes up one day and just fucking hates you, just wants you dead, wants you gone. And this is all because they believe that they're better than us. Like that is the root of terrorism. It doesn't make sense. They just hate your fucking nation. But reading this letter, it becomes apparent to me that the actions of 9-11 and those acts committed against the USA and its people were all just the buildup of our government failing other nations. The way this letter is going viral right now is giving me the greatest sense of relief. If you're Muslim and you've lived in the US since 9-11, you know more truth than the typical citizen. Now it's all coming to light because of Palestine. Now, to be clear, sometimes on this show, we sort of question the distinction between terrorism and, and violence by non-state actors. Um, 9-11 was an act of terrorism. Right? That, that was planes going into buildings full of civilians and thousands of people died. Right? So we, we should have no ambiguity um, about Osama bin Laden. Um, those videos, though, did go viral on Wednesday and videos like them. By Thursday, um, videos linked to the search term Letter to America had been viewed 14 million times. And if you searched for Letter for America, this is what you would have found um, originally. Um, so it's an English translation of a letter from bin Laden, originally published on a Saudi website and then reprinted in The Observer. Now, in it, bin Laden explains why he planned the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers. 
Um, now, it was always a fairly controversial editorial decision to publish Bin Laden, but it is undoubtedly a very interesting piece. Um, and it does have an interesting critique of Western foreign policy. So Osama Bin Laden, in his letter to America, writes this. Why are we fighting and opposing you? The answer is very simple because you attacked us and continue to attack us. You attacked us in Palestine, Palestine which has sunk under military occupation for more than 80 years. The British handed over Palestine with your help and your support to the Jews who have occupied it for more than 50 years. Years overflowing with oppression, tyranny, crimes, killing, expulsion, destruction, devastation. The creation and continuation of Israel is one of the greatest crimes and you are the leaders of its criminals. And of course, there is no need to explain and prove the degree of American support for Israel. The creation of Israel is a crime which must be erased. Each and every person whose hands have become polluted in the contribution towards this crime must pay its price and pay for it heavily. Um, now, you can see why that has gone viral in the context of an assault on Gaza. Um, also mentioned in the letter are US-led attacks in Somalia and US sanctions on Iraq following the first Gulf War. Um, in 1999, UNICEF reported that half a million children in Iraq had died due to those sanctions, one of the grimmest uh, moments in American foreign policy history. Um, Bin Laden cites a figure three times um, that high, um, so you can decide whether to believe UNICEF or Bin Laden. Um, Bin Laden also accuses the US of supporting Russia's attack on Muslim Chechens, India's suppression of Muslims in Kashmir, and Israeli aggression in Lebanon. Um, now, taken at face value, um, you don't need to accept all of it, but it, you know, it has some um, damning critique of American foreign policy, not all entirely unreasonable. Um, he's outlining a history of support for, for occupation. America has done that. A history of military aggression and direct intervention in other countries, and especially against Muslim populations in Africa and the Middle East. America has done that. Um, and bin Laden also calls out more than a few instances of Western hypocrisy. This is one example. Um, the freedom and democracy that you call for is for yourselves and for the white race only. As for the rest of the world, you impose upon them your monstrous, destructive policies and governments, which you call the American friends, yet you prevent them from establishing democracy. Now, you know who Osama bin Laden sounds like there? Vincent Bevins, uh, one of my, uh, a good friend of mine, a very good author. The, J the Jakarta method is somewhere where you could sort of read that analysis without the terrorist connotations. Um, this is another quote from Bin Laden. Um, As for the war criminals which you censure and form criminal courts for, you shamelessly ask that your own are granted immunity. However, history will not forget the crimes that you committed against the Muslims and the rest of the world. Those you have killed in Japan, Afghanistan, Somalia, Lebanon, and Iraq will remain a shame that you will never be able to escape. It will suffice to remind you of your latest war crimes in Afghanistan, in which densely populated innocent civilian villages were destroyed, bombs were dropped on mosques, causing the roof of the to come crashing down on the heads of the Muslims praying inside. Um, so, as I say, probably one-sided analysis. Right? This is not where you go for your sort of objective analysis of what's going on in the world. I don't think he's necessarily got a particularly nuanced take on what's going on, and I don't think he's looking at both sides. But it's not entirely unreasonable, right? Potentially why it's going viral. And it's not unhelpful um, for Western audiences to read it. We get delivered a very different version of history. And while this might be one-sided, it's no more one-sided than the history that we're told on, you know, mainstream, in mainstream media, right? Where we're always the good guys and everyone else is the bad guy. But in case I have any Gen Z viewers addicted to TikTok watching, you know, who've been persuaded by um, some of what I've just read you, Bin Laden, not a good guy. Not a good guy. Now, this was his proposed alternative to US liberal hegemony. The second thing we call you to is to stop your oppression, lies, immorality, and debauchery that has spread among you. 
We call you to be a people of manners, principles, honor, and purity, to reject the immoral acts of fornication, homosexuality, intoxicants, gambling, and trading with interest. We call you to all of this, that you may be freed from that which you have become caught in, that you may be freed from the deceptive lies, that you are a great nation, that your leaders spread amongst you to conceal you the despicable state to which you have reached. Now, fornication and homosexuality, two really, I I was almost going to call them creations of the West, which would be an incredibly chauvinistic thing to say, so I'm taking that back. Um, Two wonderful creations of humanity, which Osama bin Laden, um, well, he's not going to take those away from us because he's dead now, isn't he? Um, But bad, bad guy, as I say. Um, The letter is also laced with anti-Semitism, and yes, bin Laden planned 9-11, and 9-11 was very bad, um, in case you were wondering. Um, The White House has intervened. They've been keen to remind the world. Um, They've called the trend an insult to the victims of 9-11 and said there's no justification for sharing bin Laden's views. Um, And The Guardian, who published the letter, also, they agree 9-11 was bad, um, and they responded to this viral story by taking the letter down. Um, So you can see that the document was removed, um, and that led to the rather surreal moment when the most read articles on The Guardian website included an article that had been removed. So you can see there, number two um, is the removed Osama bin Laden letter to America. Um, TikTok also banned searches for the letter to America, citing their rules against promoting terrorism. Now, to me, this all seems a little bit overblown. Now, the Bin Laden letter is a fascinating historical document. You know, I, I, I don't think it's unhelpful for people to read it, you know, to see what some other people think about the West. Now, I don't really believe Gen Zers are at risk of becoming plane hijackers, right? I don't think that there is a risk that they read this analysis about Western foreign policy and that becomes some gateway drug to um, flying planes into tall buildings. I don't, I don't see that happen. I don't see that happening, sorry. Um, and it seems to me like the backlash to the TikTok trend also might have backfired. So this is from the, the Washington Post. By Wednesday night, the letter had become a point of discussion among left-wing creators on the video app, with some saying its critiques of American foreign policy had opened their eyes to a history they'd never learned. But the letter didn't rank among TikTok's top trends. Videos with the Letter to America hashtag had been seen about 2 million times, a relatively low count on a wildly popular app with 150 million accounts in the United States alone. Then, that evening, the journalist Yashar Ali shared a compilation he'd made of the TikTok videos in a post on X, formerly Twitter. That post has been viewed more than 38 million times, and by afternoon when TikTok announced it had banned the hashtag and dozens of similar variations, TikTok videos tagged Letter to America had gained more than 15 million views. So it seems that what went viral wasn't so much all these Gen Z is suddenly discovering bin Laden, but rather people's concerned reactions to a relatively small number of people sharing bin Laden's letter. One of those situations whereby you can see, um, you know, the potentially, it, it was the fuss, it was the drama about a small event that created a much bigger drama. It's called the Streisand Effect. Um, Kieran, is that what's happened here? Well, let me just say initially, I really hoped I wouldn't live in a time so incredibly stressful that Osama bin Laden becomes uh, our comic relief on this show. Um, look, I only just found out what the Streisand effect is. I thought I knew every dark and pointless corner of Wikipedia, but apparently not. Um I think trying to ban, try, creating a moral panic about things, of course, creates interest in them. Of course, it does. So maybe that's at play here. That's something for uh, out of work academics to 
turn their attentions to. Uh, but uh, I mean, certainly that video made me feel about a thousand years old. Well, that, that set of videos made me feel about a thousand years old uh, and extremely scared of TikTok. And one does one's best to keep a lid on the inner reactionary but uh, or cultural reactionary, but I'm afraid that video certainly helped bring it out. Um, yeah, I mean, look, just to echo what you've said, Michael, to any Gen Zers, although I feel incredibly condescending saying this, Bin Laden was a member of the ruling class, cosplaying anti-imperialist. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I think what this um, demonstrates to me is sort of how fragile, like... Uh, the, the sort of Western hegemony sort of seems if it if it seriously thinks that by some Gen Z is reading that analysis of Western foreign policy they're suddenly going to you know become terrorists right how little faith do you have to have in your own system of governance that you think that that's going to be a real problem and I do think it's actually a shame that the Guardian got rid of it as I said that's an incredibly interesting historical document now you know the, the Guardian has changed a lot since when they published it. So I think Seamus Milne was potentially. Don't quote me on this, but my understanding is he was maybe their their comment editor at the time. So it might have been his decision to publish it. And ever since then, the Guardian have tried to be like, "Oh no, that's our past when we used to sort of platform and publish people who are very critical of Western foreign policy. Now we're a much we're a tamed organization." Um, so the idea that they're getting all this traffic for an article written by Osama bin Laden would have potentially been worrying for them. But I think the idea that people reading that, that was inciting terrorism, is, is a bit ridiculous. It's like a historical document. So, you know, I, I think it's a little bit pathetic. I think it's a little bit thin-skinned to get rid of it. Um, let's go to a couple of comments. We've got a couple of generous super chat. Shaz Vapor with 50 quid. Thank you so much. On point as always. How do we get your messages out to the Daily Mail Express, Sun Reading, British public? Well, lots of people do watch YouTube. And a lot more people are watching our YouTube show. You know, every now and again, we try and go on GB News as well and sort of make a little chink um, in the matrix. Um, so hopefully that will have some effects. Tough, tough gig though. Um, Kieran, it's been a pleasure having you on the show tonight. It's been a pleasure joining you, Michael. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Um, come back on Monday for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.